Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So on Christmas Day, Christmas Day 1968, I wasn't born yet, but three astronauts on the Apollo 8 circled the dark side of the moon. And as they were heading for home, suddenly over the horizon of the moon, there appeared one of those awe-inspiring moments. And so these astronauts, these NASA astronauts, these highly intelligent scientific astronauts, when they saw the Earth, they didn't say Einstein's name. They didn't say Isaac Newton's name or any other scientist's name. They could have started singing lyrics to a popular song in the late 60s, like we were talking earlier, Simon and Garfunkel song or something. But as many people were watching on TV and as it was recorded, here's what people over the world heard them say. Does anybody remember? In the beginning, God. That's what the astronauts said when they saw the Earth. In the beginning, God. So tonight... We're going to start in Genesis 1.1, which we know is in the beginning, God, because we get to chapter 4 of our 1689 confession, and it deals with creation. So let's just kind of go back and talk about the structure of the confession so far. And there's a certain reason why the order is the order that it's in. So... Chapter 1's on the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, and that's where everything starts. What we believe about the Bible, the inerrancy, the authority, the inspiration of Scripture, everything that we believe comes from the authority of Scripture. Then in chapter 2, we had God, God's attributes, and then we talked about the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 3, we talked about God's decree, that God had a sovereign plan that ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And then last week we talked about predestination. And so now we get to chapter 4, and there's only three paragraphs, but it's talking about creation. And so it kind of flows into, if God had a sovereign plan from before the foundation of the world, so God's decree happened before the earth was created, chapter 4 in the, in the confession talks about the creation. So let us read... Paragraph 1, and then we are going to unpack some things related to, and we're going to mainly be in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tonight, so that's basically where we're going to camp out. So, here we go. Chapter 4 on creation, paragraph 1. In the beginning, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was pleased to create or make the world and all things in it, both visible and invisible, in a six-day period, and all very good. He did this to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. Okay, so we're going to answer these questions, but basically this first paragraph, who created? Father, Son, and Spirit. Actually, the whole the Trinity created. How did God create? Out of nothing. When did God create? In six days. Here's the ultimate question. Why did God create? 
Was it because he was lonely up in heaven and he needed some friends? God needed some people to love him back because he was so lonely? No, God did it for his glory. And then what was the nature of his creation? It was very good. So, why does it start with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit pleased to create or make the world? Oftentimes we think about just the Father, God the Father being the agent or the, the primary one who created. But the Bible mentions all three persons of the Trinity in the act of creation. So obviously, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's speaking of God the Father. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we are all things and through whom we exist. Actually, in that verse, it talks about both God the Father and Jesus the Son being the creator of all things. Okay? But we also know Jesus the Son created the world. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and that's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, all things were made through Jesus. So you can ask the question, who created? Did God the Father or Jesus the Son create? The answer is yes. Both, okay? Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, that's an interesting passage of scripture because I want you to notice something. Things visible and invisible. What does that mean? Things visible and invisible. So we can see things that he created, the earth, the stars, the moon, the sun, with telescopes, we can see the galaxies. But what is invisible that God created or Jesus created? Heaven, the spiritual world, things we can't see. Now, that last phrase there, in him all things hold together, it's, it's the Greek word, you'll, you'll, know, you'll you know how you get it from English. It's the Greek word sustainio, which means he sustains all things. So not only did God create, but this passage of scripture says Jesus sustains all things. He keeps all things going. So God the Father was there at creation, he created. God the Son, and then the Holy Spirit, and how do we know that? So let's look at Genesis 1. And then Genesis 1, 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. So the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all involved in creation. And so how did God create now think about the different ways God could have created. God could have thought the universe into existence. God could have molded the universe into existence. God could have snapped his finger and the universe came into existence. But how did he create? Hebrews 11.3 says this. 
We understand by faith that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, let's go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Created. Just a side note. How does the Bible start? The Bible starts assuming God is already in existence. In the beginning, before anything, God's already on the scene. But that word create, so um, the Hebrew word is bahra. Bahra. And it's a very special, unique word used in the original language to tell us the nature of that creation. Okay, so that word, first of all, is used only exclusively of God. It's never used of like a human creating a pot or a human fashioning a utensil. It's never used to describe a human creating anything. That word is only used for God creating. So, so when it says God created, it's a special act of creation reserved only for God. But secondly, and this is very important, the way the verb is used, it refers to the completed act of creation. In other words, it doesn't mean that God began the process of creating and then it kind of like God started it and it's kind of continuing on and creation's ongoing and ongoing and ongoing and ongoing. What it really means is that God actually created out of nothing. The Latin is ex nihilo. So let's just ask the question, was there anything there with which God used to create? Because if it was there, how did it get there? Unless it's part of God, which we know his creation is not part of him, God create out of that's hard to that's hard to conceive of. Creating out of nothing. So so God specially, uniquely created out of nothing by the power of his word. Okay? So in this creation account in Genesis 1, with each successive day we see God's sovereign way of doing things in five critical areas related to his powerful word. So let's just read Genesis 1. Maybe It's been a long time, maybe since you've read it. So let's just read it together, okay? Let's pick up in verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let's just stop right there. We'll come back to that. So let's look at these, this pattern of how God brings about creation. Uh, the first thing we see on every day is the command, let there be. Now again, God is sovereignly creating with his word, but the reason why God says let there be is because God is sovereignly doing it. God is calling it into existence. Whereas when God says, let there be something, is it going to happen? Yes. So from the very beginning, God's sovereignly saying, let it happen. Let there be. Let it, let it, be, let it be because I am sovereignly doing this. Okay. Second, you see a separation. I don't know if you noticed that. Separating or dividing. There's a dividing of day and night, waters and land, fish and birds. There's this... The separation and dividing. Now, why, why would you think this is true? I think what we're seeing from the very beginning is that in God's economy, there's, there's order. There's boundaries. God's never a God of chaos. It's, it's an orderly creation. Okay? And then third, not only does God say, let there be, not only does God divide and separate, but God names what he creates. Notice it says he called. He called. He called it day. He called it night. Again, animals don't name themselves. Humans don't name ourselves. Every single thing is subordinate to God who creates, who calls, who's sovereign over his creation. And then fourth, what do we see? God, God's evaluation of his creation every day, what does it say? God saw it and it was good. So it's really kind of a pronouncement of a blessing on what God created. That's important that we understand this when you get to chapter 3 and you see the fall, that the world was good before Adam and Eve sinned. God created the world good. Okay, now this is where we get to the, um, I'm not a scientist, okay, so I'm, Dave, you're a science teacher. So I, my son likes science. My wife likes science. I'm a pastor. So this is where the, I get into the waters. I'm not as, as well versed, but here's the, we're going to spend some time on this. This is the controversial one. And that is fifthly, the chronological framework, six days of creation followed by the seventh, 
where God purposely rests, and that doesn't mean that God rests because he was tired. It's a prototype for the Sabbath that we are to, to observe. Now, the word day there, okay, it's this Hebrew word, yom. You heard of Yom Kippur? Yom. Day. Now, here's the question. And um, I'm not going to be dogmatic on this because I will say from the very beginning, this has been debated by fine evangelical Bible-believing Christians for centuries. And it's kind of like end times. You don't want to be dogmatic on issues related to creation because here's the one thing. Was anybody there to observe it? Okay. We do have a scientific record. We have a fossil record. We do have what we can observe. But we also have a scripture that tells us some things. And so um, here's the question. When it talks about six days, is it a literal 24-hour day like we have today? Or is it metaphorical for thousands or even millions of years? That's the question. So there's the question in this discussion are two questions. Is it a literal 24-hour day? And then another question would be, is it an old earth or a young earth? Okay. So young earth would say, the earth is maybe around 6,000 years old, when you date it back to Adam and creation. Old earth people would say, no, the earth is like billions of years old. So the question is, how old is the earth, and was it a literal 24-hour day? Okay, now, again, I'm going to leave freedom for you to, to come to your own conclusions, but I'm going to lay my cards on the table. And, 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 and I'm not, like I said, I'm not, I don't, I, I'm not a scientific, I'm not wired to think scientifically. So my wife and I have these conversations, and I think she and I sometimes disagree on things because she's more wired that way. But I just take it at face value personally that it's a 24 hour day, literal 24 hour, six days. I believe God can do that in his sovereignty, and, and that's kind of what I believe. Um, but there are many scholars whom I respect that do believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and do believe in the authority of the Bible that would not take it as a literal 24-hour period. Okay, So let's just stop and say this. Was the Bible given to be a textbook to answer all of our scientific questions? No. Does the Bible contain things that relate to science yes okay so we can't be 100% conclusive because nobody was there to observe it happening we take the evidence that God wants us to have in what we see in science we take what Moses wrote down here which I take at face value and we come to our conclusion so with that being said I personally believe in a literal 24-hour, six-day creation. But in fairness, I want to present three other views. Now, there's like six or seven or eight, but I don't want to get, I don't want to do all of them. I'm going to do like the three main ones, okay? So there are three and more, but for the sake of time and confusion, I don't want to confuse you. Like, there are three other alternative views to the historical 24-hour day. So um, it wasn't really until modern science, maybe around the 1800s, when things started changing a little bit in people's views uh, because of discoveries in science and things like that with technology. 
So let's talk about the first alternative. And again, these are views that, these are all views that evangelical Christians hold to. These aren't, you don't have to be a liberal theologian to hold to these views. Conservative evangelicals hold to these views, okay? So the, the first alternative view is what we would call the gap theory. The gap theory. Okay, so let's talk about the, this was popularized by the Schofield, everybody heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? Came out in 1909, <coughs> big time dispensational Bible. A lot of people that are like in the dispensational fundamentalist camps have their Schofield Reference Bible. So go back to verse 1, okay? So let me explain to you the gap theory and how they get the gap theory, okay? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What this view says is that was the original creation. Okay, verse 2, where it talks about the earth was formed without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. They take verse 2 to refer to some type of cosmic catastrophe that happened to cause the original creation in Genesis 1 to, to go haywire and to um, be fallen. So what they would say is there's a gap between verses 1 and verses 2. And that gap could be billions of years, followed by another billions of years. And so when you get to verse 3, God is recreating that original one that had been around for a billion years and that new one he created in the literal six day. So what they're trying to do is, the gap there is kind of, kind of have your cake and eat it too. I want to believe in six literal days, but I also want to believe in an old earth billions of years old. So does everybody understand the gap theory? So God originally created the universe. That could have been a billion years ago. And for a billion years, that universe that world, that earth was there. And then something happened to that earth, maybe another billion years. And then God came back and in six days re renovated or recreated that fallen earth to what we have today. So it is an old earth, billions of years old, but does anybody, do you understand what I'm saying here? Is it kind of, is it confusing? So the gap is, there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and that gap could be billions of years. Okay, now, the issue with this, I'm just in fairness, nowhere do I find evidence that explicitly teaches that that original creation in verse 1 somehow got corrupt in verse 2, and God had to come back and renovate it in verse 3. A plain reading of the text you don't find that theory. But some people do hold to the gap theory. So before we go any further, does anybody have questions on the gap theory? Or is it does everybody understand what, what they're saying? Is that where scientists get all their that the earth is like billions of years? Yeah, they would say like the fossil record and carbon dating and all the things that we have, they would say it's not the, the earth is not six thousand years old, it's billions of years old because of the fossil record. And then Christians would say, we agree with the scientific method of the fossil record in the old earth, therefore 
our understanding of how to understand the billions of years with what the Bible says is they've come up with the gap theory to kind of answer that question. Okay. So let me just say something about, do you guys remember when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980? Okay. That was a volcanic eruption. Okay. Months after that, do you guys know what they found? They found sediments when it settled that almost looked like, like you compare something that happened like that in like a couple of months, they had the same strata and sediments that people have seen, like that they would say are millions of years old. Because the issue with the millions of years old is you've got to have millions of years for, this, for the fossils to pile up and for the sediments to be there, and, and all these years for that to happen. And that could only happen in a billion year period. Well, Mount St. Helens came along and, and you almost had the same exact phenomenon in just a few months in a volcanic eruption. So I'm not saying that proves one way or the other, but the gap theory is a Christian way to harmonize an old earth, millions or billions of years old, with a literal six-day creation that you find at face value in Genesis. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Now, the second one is what we call the day-age theory. Okay. The day-age theory. Now, this word yom, it can mean 24-hour day. But it can also mean, sometimes in the Bible, you ever heard like, with the day, the day is like a thousand years with the Lord. You know, so the day-age theory says, when the word day is used here in Genesis 1, it's more of an age. An undefined age. It could be thousands or millions of years. We're not so much tied to it being a literal 24-hour. It's an age. And so basically what they're saying is that, yes, God created in 24 hours. I mean, yes, God created in a day, but it wasn't in a literal 24-hour day. It could have been God. God did create in six consecutive... They would say God creates in six consecutive stages, but those stages, i.e. days, are not literal 24-hour days. Day one may have been a million years. Day two may have been a million years. Day three may have been a million. So you, you add them all up and you have like six or something million years. The day-age theory. Okay? Anybody have questions on that? The third one, this is a little harder to understand, but it's one that's called, it's, not, it's on your sheet, but it's not up there. This is called the framework hypothesis. What the framework hypothesis says is, basically what they're saying is this. Genesis 1.1, Genesis chapter 1 was never written to be, was never written to tell us how God created it is a poetic and figurative way to show us that God created. And it's, it's poetic, it's symbolic, it's allegorical. It is more the drama of God doing this in six consecutive stages. And the seventh act of the play is that he rested. And so it's more um, poetic, not so much scientific to tell us how God did it, but that God did it. And it allows for the Big Bang. It allows for the day-age theory. 
and it may even allow for any view. So it's not so much, basically the, the framework hypothesis says we're not so concerned with whether it's a 24 hour literal day, that's not the big deal. The big deal is that God did it in six consecutive stages and that it's more of a poetic way of saying that. Now, let me just give you um, another view that I would say we'd have to reject. And this would be theistic macroevolution. I probably should have put macroevolution in there. Okay. Theistic macroevolution is this. This view holds that God did indeed create everything, but yet he chose to do it through a Darwinian evolutionary model. God merely guided the process so that the result was what he wanted it to be over a million years. The, the one problem I have with that is that, Greek, that Hebrew word for create there in Genesis 1.1 leads us literarily and grammatically to understand it being an instantaneous act of creation out of nothing. That God brought forth everything at that time. Okay, now, you guys tell me, what's the difference between macroevolution and microevolution? You guys know the difference between those two? So macroevolution would be that God created a single cell organism in some swamp somewhere. And then from that, it oozed out and became like what Darwin would say. It oozed out into a salamander, then the salamander evolved into a pig and then a pig into an ape and then an ape into like that that would be like macroevolution okay like species to species okay. microevolution would be and i think this is i think that there's there's a warrant for my, microevolution would be within the species there are significant changes over time based upon environment in other words is there one species of dog or do we have different breeds and some are small. I mean, so God created a dog. And there may be different types of dogs that have adapted over the years, but God did not create a dog and the dog became a monkey. Or God created a monkey and the monkey became a man. That would be macroevolution. Microevolution would be God created a dog, and then from that there may be different types of breeds of dogs, or bigger dogs or smaller dogs, depending on like chihuahuas versus huskies things within the species. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Now, let's talk about how the word day is used by Moses in other parts of the Bible. Because if you believe Moses wrote Genesis, he also wrote Exodus. And so if, if Moses used the word day a specific way in Genesis, how did he use the word day in other places? So I'm just going to give you an argument from the Ten Commandments. So what's the fourth commandment? You shall observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Okay, so Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day, same word yom, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or your sojourner who's within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay. If we are to take Scripture, interpreting Scripture, you just guys tell me at face value, how does Moses take the word day here in Exodus? Okay, remember the Sabbath day. Is he taking that as an age? Like, remember the, remember the million years of Sabbath. Is, is that what he's saying here? Or is he saying it's a specific what? Day. There's, you, you work for six literal 24-hour days, and on the seventh day you rest. So Moses is thinking of this as the way they would have understood it, a literal day. And then in the midst of that instructions on how to keep the Sabbath, what does he tie it back to? For in how many days? In six days, the Lord made the heaven and earth and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. So you either have to make a leap. You have to say, okay, when, when Moses is talking about the Sabbath day, he's talking about literal 24-hour days. Then when he shifts to when God created, he's shifting the word day to mean something different than what he just meant, not 24-hour literal, but, but maybe an age or a period. But the burden's on you to make, to make that leap. Because the plain reading would say, if Moses wrote Genesis and Moses wrote Exodus, and in Exodus he talks about a literal 24-hour day, and then he ties back to what he wrote in Genesis by quoting it there in Exodus, consistency would say that he's talking about a 24-hour day. Now again, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. What's the point of creation? Okay, let me say it this way. I'm not, and I've told this to my son because we've had conversations, I'm not concerned so much that we argue how God created, but that he created. God created. God did it sovereignly. Okay, here's, so here it's like, if you believe God created, God sovereignly created, he created out of nothing, he created by his word, and he did it for his glory, I think we can all agree with that. And let the details be kind of like end times. Jesus is coming back. How and the details and all that, we, we, we can argue. So I don't want to be, I mean, I have my opinion, but I could be wrong. But I think the main thing that we've got to do is just understand that God created. God created sovereignly. God created out of nothing. God specially created. There's order to his creation. There's days to his creation. He does it for his glory, and God did it by the power of his word. Any questions on that as we before we move forward to the second paragraph? Okay. Yes, Dave. You know, it's tough. But one thing I see is that I think students feel confused because they understand science. If you mm. take out life science, they mm. understand it. And then I feel like they're they're being forced to make decisions sometimes from peers, mm -hmm. from different you know places, and it's sad because they're they're like, well, I, I either can believe in dinosaurs, I can believe in God, and I can't believe in both. Mm -hmm. And I've read lots of um, journals and magazines where like people in an older age finally realized it was okay to be a Christian and still 
believe in science. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes me probably the most nervous about being a science teacher, <laughs> is that you don't drive that apart. Yeah. And a lot of times, it's coming from other students within the class. It's not driven by, by yeah, curriculum or it's... And where do you think students get their information from? Is it just in, it's just in the air that they breathe? It's just assumed because we've grown up in kind of a Darwinian world that... Um, a lot of it's at home, sure. or the upbringing ones, but I mean, unfortunately TikTok and YouTube are yeah. educating them as well. Yeah. So I mean, it is our job to talk to them about that, but um, to see the strain, especially kids that are really taking it to heart, mm -hmm. um, it's stressful. Yeah. For you as a teacher? For yeah. you as a, especially a Christian teacher. Yeah. And so, so what would be the, like, do you have an answer for that, or is it just more, just hard to... No, it is, yeah. um, and depending on the relationship I have with different students, you know, we can kind of talk in different ways. And yeah. Like yeah. Yeah, I mean, some, there, there's two extremes, okay? Some church cultures, there's no room for asking any type of question related to science, and you're automatically shut down. And there's like there's no room for exploration or questions. It's like you're shut down. We don't ever want to have that attitude. We want to like always be willing to ask questions. This this is a free place for you to ask questions. No questions out of bounds. We'll do the best we can to answer it. So so one is extreme is to be so legalistic that we're not even going to allow you to you know answer this. The other extreme is that we're going to go so far on the, our Darwinian theistic evolution that we're going to abandon the clear teachings of Scripture and go with what the world teaches and so there's that happy medium and i guess it's kind of a, you're trying to look for that happy medium of where you can abide by the scriptures and still be um honest with the science is that kind of what, you, what you're saying and hopefully in god's world since god created those wouldn't be in conflict so the problem is not the science the problem's not God. The problem is our understanding of it and how it all works together. And the teacher, you know, can be. I remember that class way back in. And he was your teacher way back. No, in. he's, <laughs> younger. he's a lot younger than you. Teacher, <laughs> no, my teacher was not Christian. Yeah. And I was just new in going to church and, and new in youth and stuff and. So what he was teaching me, I was like... Yeah, and I was the I was the rude kid that like in life science in eighth grade, I purposely did a paper <laughs> against evolution to make my teacher mad, knowing that I would get a bad grade, but did it anyway. That's just kind of the way I am. But um, um, anyway, yeah, that's, that's, a, that, that's a tough one, Dave. And, um, and I guess just as adults, we can have this conversation, but you, you have to remember the youth, and they're in a different position. Mm -hmm. Well, and a lot of peer pressure. Yeah, the peer pressure and the they don't want to speak up for fear of being labeled or whatever and stuff like that. But even in education, you can't talk Christian related. Like I can't on the yeah. bus. I can't yeah. tell. Oh, you know. This right. is another subject for another time. Right. But I, well, I'll bring this up at another time. But sadly, I'm going to blow away your. You're going to disagree with me. I think you should speak out, even though you're not allowed to. And here's why. Because we don't live in a neutral world anymore. 
People think we live in a neutral world, but those that are on the other side are not being neutral. They're pushing their agenda. Mm -hmm. And we're just sitting back and being quiet. And so the rules have changed. So if they're going to play by, I'm going to push it, even though I'm not supposed to, I think Christians, we should say, you know what? Use wisdom, but you may need to say something. But again, you could lose your job, so you need to be careful with that. Right. All right. Now, let's go to any other questions on that at all. So, yeah, this is a, this is a um, again, not my forte. Creationism is not where I um, am the most comfortable, again, because I'm not that scientific of a mind. But let's look at paragraph two. After God had made all other creatures, he created humanity. He made them male and female with rational and immortal souls, thereby making them suited to that life lived unto God for which they were created. They were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. They had the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it. Even so, they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Okay, we're going to talk about this for just a moment. Okay, so... Let's go down to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Actually, let's just look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Okay. So God created them male and female in his image and likeness. So God created man. It's interesting, the word man is the word Adam. So Adam is the word man. The word dust or ground is Adamah. God created Adam from the Adamah. So Adam means man, Adamah means dust. So we're, we're created out of, Adam was created out of dust. Now, when it says, in his own image, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then back in verse 26, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Some people see image and likeness as two different things. I don't think they're two distinct things. I think they're synonyms for talking about the same thing. In other words, being created in God's image and likeness are basically saying the same thing, that basically we are created with the mental faculties different from animals. We're created as spiritual beings to commune with God, to have intelligence, to think, to form language, to um, have a spiritual relationship with God. But what does it mean to be created in the image and likeness of God? Let's, let's talk about a few things here. In the image. Now, um, one thing we learned back in chapter 2 about God, the Father, God is spirit, right? God doesn't have a body. So, um, 
It can't be something physically related to God. So there's something different about what it means to be created in the image of God. So the first thing we need to understand is this. Man and woman is a dependent creature, not independent and autonomous. Who created whom? God created us. God has sovereign rights over us. We are not free to do whatever we want. We are the creature. He's the creator. Um, Isaiah 40, 25-28. This is God speaking. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Talking about the stars. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his mind, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not one star is missing. God knows every single star by name. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So God is the sovereign creator, and by that definition, we are dependent upon him for everything. But I think these, these two fundamental issues, I think, are the problem in our world today. Number one, do most people believe they are created to be dependent upon God, or do they think they're independent and do whatever they want? Independent and do whatever they want. Okay, second thing... Being created in God's image means we exist to display His glory. That's why we were created. To display God's glory. And the way that we display God's glory, initially with Adam and Eve, was they were to have dominion. So let us make man so that he may have dominion. In verse 26, God said, let us make man after our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Literally, in the original language, is so that they may have dominion. So, ruling over creation is not necessarily the essence of the divine image, but rather a result of being made in the divine image. So, being made in God's image, Adam was given authority over the earth to rule as a servant king. He was to be God's royal representative on earth. I want you to think about those two words here. Adam was to be like a king. What's a king? A king. So he was to represent God. In a sense, you could say that Adam was God's son. I mean, in a, in a metaphorical sense. So he was to rule and represent God, and he was also to serve. A servant king. Psalm 8, 4-8. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? That you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, 
all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So Adam, this is very important. Adam, the word image means that originally Adam was to represent God in terms of his royal rule as sovereign creator. And so one thing that Adam was supposed to do was to be a good steward of the creation. Obviously, animals don't run the show. Humans do. But Adam was not to live for his own glory, doing his own thing, but he was to live for God's glory, doing God's will, serving as God's representative on the earth as a king, as a ruler to have dominion, not to wield it unruly or to be a tyrant, but to represent God to the earth. And so that's really what Adam's responsibility was. Now, even after the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, the image of God was not destroyed. Are we created in the image of God? Yes. Are we different than Adam when he was originally created? Yes, we're created fallen. Adam was not. But we still have the image of God stamped upon us. So what does that mean, to have the image of God in your life? It means that, look at what the confession says, okay? It gives a pretty good definition there. Let's go back and read how they define it. Now, they don't unpack the true meaning of these words. It's, again, it's a summary statement. But they would say there that we're made in his image and likeness. And then what does, he, what does it say there? Um, okay, so they, like halfway through that second paragraph, they were made in the image of God, being endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness. Okay, so they have the ability to know. They have the ability to follow God. They have the ability to dis display God's glory. And so we have that same stamp of God's image on us as well, where we, are, we have dignity as humans, we have value, we have sanctity. Yes. We can relate to God being created in his image. Um, and so God's image is still in us. Now, I want to address something that we have to address. Notice what he says there. And we have to say this. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have to say it. What does verse 27 say? He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He could have stopped right there. What does it say? Male and female, he created them. Now, I want you to notice the language there. Male and female, he created them. He doesn't say man or woman. To denote their sexuality. He calls them male and female. To denote their sexuality and anatomy. Male and female. Okay. All right, boys and girls. Is there a difference between the male body? And the, I mean, there's a dis distinct difference between a male and a female. Now, in today's world, there's much confusion over gender, sex, and identity issues. It's a transgender issue that's, that's happening right now. Um, 
So what happened in 2015? Anybody remember? 2015, the Supreme Court, Obergefell and Hodges made gay marriage legal in all 50 states. Okay. That was a watershed moment where sin was codified in our land. Okay, that was 2015. How many? That's nine years ago. Okay. In nine years, how fast have things moved that before 2015 was incremental? Like it took a long time for the gay rights movement to get steam to where 2015 happened. Okay. Also in 2015, who showed up on the cover of Vanity Fair? Bruce Jenner. But as Caitlin, call me Caitlin. So what, let's say that the gay rights movement started in the late 60s. Let's say, let's just, let's just make it 1970. So from 1970 to 2015, those of you that are good at math, how many, how many years was that? 45 years? Okay, so it took 45 years in our culture to get to a point where gay marriage was legal. We're nine years later, and we're, we're, where's the transgender issue? Has it taken 45 years? No, it just, it launched really fast. Um, there's a book, I don't know, hopefully it's not in our library, but it's, it's geared towards four-year-olds. Four it's called The Gender Fairy. And this book says, only you, whether you were a boy or a girl, no one, uh, only you can tell whether you're a boy or a girl, no one can tell you. So, I don't want to go much further, but our culture would be so different if people would obey Genesis 1. <laughs> I mean, it goes back to Genesis 1. God is sovereign. God is creator. We're not autonomous. We're accountable to him. He created us male and female. He created us for his glory. Is that a message you hear in our world? What's the exact opposite? I'm the captain of my own soul. I can do whatever I dang well please. I don't have to ask, I don't have to get permission from anybody. I can be whoever I want to be. I don't care about other people's rights. I want to do what I want to do, and I live for myself. Is that what the world is like right now? And so it's going to be very difficult in days ahead in presenting the gospel to people. Because you almost have to back up to the very beginning and teach them about who God is and who they are before they even understand their need. Like, okay, so I'm reading a book right now. I'm going to go off script because I think we have a little time. So I'm reading a book right now that, that's by a guy named Aaron Wren. It's called Life in the Negative World. And basically, here's his thesis, and I'll write it up on the board. He basically said that basically post-World War II... You had three eras. You had 1965 to 1994. This is what he calls the positive world. And the positive world in America meant from 1965 to 1994, there was nothing wrong with being a Christian. It was viewed as positive in culture. People went to church. You weren't hated. Not everybody was a born-again Christian, but there were Christian values. 
Um, this was a time where, during this time, the moral majority came out with Jerry Falwell. So Christianity was not viewed as anything negative in our culture. It was positive. Okay. Then, let me get a black pen so maybe people on the... So then he said we moved into what was called a neutral world. Neutral world was from 1995 to 2014. The neutral world became where it's not necessarily bad to be a Christian, but it's not that it, it, people are moving away from Christianity. I'm not going to say, you do you, I do me, you're free to be a Christian, I'm free to do what I'm not, but I'm not going to be all upset about it. Um, so during in a neutral world, um, you had a lot of kind of the seeker-sensitive movement where you were trying to get people to come to church, and it was you kind of like lowered the barriers so that you made it easier. You kind of watered down the gospel. So it wasn't, Christianity was not positive. It wasn't positive to be a Christian, but nobody really, everybody kind of got along. Okay. Now his argument now is that we are in the negative world. And that's from basically 2015 to present. Now, why did he date in 2015? I just told you. What happened in 2015? So now, his argument is that we're living in a negative world. And the negative world means that Christianity is seen as a threat. If you're a Christian, you're a bigot. You're hateful. You're not even allowed to have a, have a voice. You will be canceled. You can't practice your faith. You need to sit down and shut up. And if you even talk about anything about Christian values, you will be silenced. Okay. So... We live in a negative world that hates God. Would you agree with that? Okay. So the big question is, okay, as Christians, how do we, how do we respond? Now, the rest of his books give some answers to that. And I'm interested to see what he has to say. But I think you feel it. Whether you know it, you feel it. You may not have come up with that taxonomy of positive world, neutral world, or negative world, but you, you feel it every day, do you not? The way that Christians are perceived. And different parts of the country are different. If we were to live in Boulder, it would be a lot different than how near in Sterling. Um, I've got some pastor friends that live in Boulder, and I'm on a threaded discussion with other pastors in Colorado, and I'm the only one out here in Sterling. And some of the conversations that they that we have, I find myself like not thankful that I'm out here, but just like the, the things they deal with are a lot different. Just the persecution. Uh, one of my friends' churches. They got hate crime. They got some. Somebody was on them. Wrote them in the Denver or in the Rocky Mountain News, Denver Post. They had you know, just a lot of issues related to their church, just because they stand for the same things we stand for. It's just when you stand for those things, like in Boulder or in San Francisco or Manhattan, you're going to feel that negative world a lot quicker than out here. So in rural America, we still have a little bit of the positive. Maybe not positive, but you know, maybe we're still in the neutral world out here a little bit, but not for long. So, now, why did I go on that tangent? Why did I? Somebody, somebody answer me. Somebody, yes, Brandon, go ahead. You know, the other correlation to that is the '92 would have been a transition between the old bag phone that you had to carry around mm -hmm. to the flip phone, where you're able to get more information. Yeah, cell phones are a cause of. Mm -hmm. Everything. Yeah, 90, yeah, 95 is when you started. Like, 95 is when, does anybody remember when they first got on the internet? When was that around? 
95, okay. You've got mail. Remember AOL? I mean, AOL. I mean, back to the, the dial-up, and it took 15 years to finally get on the computer. And, um, so yeah, technology, phones, all that stuff started started changing. Um, it was also kind of the fall of the Berlin Wall, where what kind of kept the positive world together was that we had a common enemy in the Soviet Union that made kind of America. We want to stay strong as Americans because there was that. We don't want to be taken over by the communists. Well, when the Berlin Wall fell and communism fell, we didn't have this common enemy anymore. It was kind of like peace and prosperity and the Clinton years, where everything kind of got a little bit different. So anyway, it's just fascinating. So let's go back to the conf the conf. My point was that we, if we, people do not like Genesis one. Um, Let's go back to that chapter four, and I want to see what you guys think about the statement that says they have the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, even so they could still transgress the law because they were left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. Okay. What they're saying here is this. Now, this is not explicitly taught in the Bible, but it's inferred from other places in the Bible. What, what it's saying is that Adam and Eve were created with a conscience to know right from wrong. Okay. Does everybody, Romans does teach that everybody's born with a conscience that knows right from wrong. Adam and Eve knew what was right from wrong because it was, they were created with that conscience. But God also told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he also gave them a command. So not only was it the conscience, they knew it in their heart, but God also gave them an external command not to eat. But it says there, they could fulfill it. If they, they had the power to obey. But they also had the free will to not obey. Okay, so they, they could obey, but they also could not obey. Okay. Now, the difference between them and us is what? Do we have the power to, to obey perfectly? No. So, let's go into to chapter to, to paragraph three. In addition to the law written in their hearts, that conscience, they received a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As long as they obeyed the command, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. Okay. So let's go to Genesis 2.17. Actually, let's go to um, verse 15. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you'll surely die. Okay. You're free to eat whatever you want. God's not being stingy here. God's actually giving them grace and freedom and joy. Says, you can enjoy any tree that you want, except for one. If you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you eat of it, what will happen to you? You will surely what? 
die. Okay. Now, what exactly is the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What does it represent? So let me give you what I believe it means. I believe that the tree of knowledge of good and evil means they needed to gain wisdom to obey God through his revelation, his timetable, in his terms. God was going to reveal to them the true knowledge they needed. They didn't need to go eat it from a tree. They needed to wait upon God to reveal to them what they needed to know when God wanted them to know it and how God wanted them to know it on God's terms. So when you trace the idea of spiritual wisdom or knowledge on how to live a godly life, it's often equated with the tree. And I want to tell you something. The tree of knowledge and the tree of life show up in Genesis and they show up in Revelation. So how does the Bible start? Here's the, here's the order of the Bible. Beginning, middle, beginning. <laughs> no, it has a beginning, middle, end. But Proverbs 1.7 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So here's what needed to happen. Adam and Eve needed to wait upon God to reveal knowledge to them on God's terms. They weren't to experiment with it on their own by going and eating from a tree. And so the knowledge of good and evil comes in worship, in fearing the Lord, not independently or autonomously experimenting, but upon relying on what God has chosen to reveal. Okay? So what do we see today? What do people say today? I don't want to receive knowledge from God or wait upon God or learn from God. I want to go experiment on my own and find out. I want to do it on my own terms. I want to learn about things the way I want to learn about things. See, from the very beginning, God is creating them to be dependent upon Him. But everything that, they're, everything that, that, that happens is independence. Now, we won't get to this tonight, but what does the serpent come in and say? Did God really say not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? He didn't say that, did he? So the serpent lies to Eve, and she's deceived. So the knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, represented the difference between trusting in our own understanding and knowledge instead of trusting in the revealed word of God. <coughs> so what is Proverbs 3, 5 through 7? Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight the path. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, I'm going to introduce something here tonight that will be introduced later on in the confession, but I want to introduce the covenant of works because it, it is, sometimes it's called the covenant of creation. And it, it's really critical to understanding the rest of the Bible. So, 
you do not see the term covenant of works here in Genesis chapter 2. Okay. But what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two parties with stipulations and commands and results and conditions. Okay? So, this is a covenant between God and Adam. What does is, what is God say to Adam? Is God being unfair to Adam and saying, listen, I'm being stingy and you really can't do anything. What's God say? You're free to what? Eat of any tree of the garden. But there's this one tree you can't eat. So, the covenant of works is this. What are the conditions? The conditions are... Adam must pass the test of obedience and not eat of the tree. What's the implication? If you eat of it, you will what? Die. What's the opposite of that? If you don't eat of it, you will live. Okay? So, God gives Adam, in a sense, a test. You're free to eat of any tree of the garden, but I'm, what do you, when you tell a kid not to do something... You give them freedom to do a bunch of stuff, but there's that one thing you can't do. What do they want to do? I want to do what you told me not to do. There's a bunch of cookies over here that mom made a few days ago, but do not eat the ones that just came out of the oven. That's for dad when he comes home. What are they going to want to do? Go eat the ones for dad. So, if Adam passes the test, he can enjoy eternal life with God in his upright state. If he fails the test... He plunges not only himself, but the entire race into rebellion and sin against God. So the, the condition is, Adam, you've got to pass the test and not eat. If you pass the test, you get to live. If you don't pass the test, you die. And not only you die, but everybody after you dies because you're the representative. Now, why is it called a covenant of works as opposed to a covenant of grace? Because the covenant is conditioned upon Adam's obedience or his works. As our representative, Adam would find blessing and eternal life based upon obedience and works. He would find a curse and death if he did not obey. Now, Adam was created sinless and upright. But he was also, this is the thing, he was also able to sin. He was created sinless, but able to sin. Okay, so Adam was created sinless, but able to sin. We are born, what? Not sinless and not able to not sin, right? What happens when we get to heaven? We will be sinless and not able to sin. So it's different even for us in heaven than it was for Adam before he was before he fell. You understand what I'm saying? In heaven, we will be sinless like Adam, but we'll be different than Adam. We won't have any possibility of sinning. Adam was created sinless, but he still had the possibility of sinning. And how do we know he had the possibility of sinning? Because he did what? He sinned. Okay. Even though he was perfectly sinless, he still fell. Um, so he was not created with automatic access to eternal life and perfect communion with God, as we will have in heaven. In heaven, I think I just said this, we will not be able to sin or fall. 
we will be perfect for eternity. In the garden, Adam, though sinless, could not remain that way and fell. Now, it's interesting how you think about Revelation. I said Revelation talks about these trees. Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember, there's two trees in the garden, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. They weren't really allowed to eat it from either one of them. But in heaven, we will have access to the tree of life. Um, I, I'll give you that. There's another Revelation passage. You can read that later that just talks about the tree of life being in heaven. But what I want to show is what happened when Adam sinned. Go to chapter 3. Verses 22 through 24. What happened when Adam sinned? Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Okay, here's the point of the covenant of works. This is what you need to understand. <coughs> These P words. Adam must obey God perfectly, personally, and perpetually. Okay? In other words, he must never fail. He must perfectly keep that. He must perfectly not ever eat from the tree of life. Perfectly. In every way. Personally, he has to be accountable for it. If he, if he eats it, he's, he's accountable. And then perpetually, he has to do it forever. But we know that he didn't. So did God give Adam any wiggle room when he gave him this command? It's pretty clear, wasn't it? You eat it, you die. You don't eat of it, you live. Does Adam pass the test? Does Adam live up to the covenant of works? Does, does Adam do it? Does Adam hold, oh, let's just ask this way. Does Adam uphold his end of the bargain? No. So you may say, okay, well, Adam sinned. So what? What does that affect me with? Well, it doesn't tell us immediately right here in Genesis the results of it, but Paul tells us what happened. So Romans 5.12 tells us because Adam is our federal head, our federal representative, and what I mean by that is, okay, what I mean by that is our state senator goes to Washington and represents Colorado. Now, do all of us go to Washington and vote on bills? No, we send a senator or a representative, and they do what? They go in our place to represent us, and what they vote on affects Colorado, whether we like it or not. So you may not like your senator, and you may not like how he voted, but his vote affects Colorado because he's our representative. Same way. What Adam did... He was the representative of the entire human race. So what he did impacts not just the state of Colorado, but the entire human race. So Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through who? One man, that was Adam. And death 
through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Adam brought death, in spirit, physical death and spiritual death into the world, and it spread to all of us because of his one act of, of sin. And we know Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you, go, if you continue down in Romans 5, 18 through 19, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Adam tra- trespassed the covenant. He brought condemnation. He brought death. He brought guilt. He brought disobedience to every single person who is born. And so here's the point. Every single one of us is born under the covenant of works, which means that the only way you can earn eternal life for yourself is the same way it was for Adam. Personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law. So, if you want to have eternal life, you just got to obey God's law 100% of the time perfectly and make no mistakes. And if you can do that, you're good. Now, what's the problem? Can any of us do that? Think about this for a moment. Adam couldn't do it in his sinless state. How much more do we think we can do it in our sinful state? So the covenant of works that Adam broke in the garden and that all of us are born under today shows us that we in no way can do this and we will fail every time just like Adam did and he was actually created upright. So what we need is a second Adam. Jesus is often called the second Adam. What did Jesus do? He came and lived the life that Adam didn't. Adam didn't obey. Jesus did. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could have restored fellowship with God. And it's not restored Eden that Jesus brings us. It's a new heavens and a new earth where we live forever with him in that eternal place. Now, we have seen God create the universe out of nothing for his glory. So let me ask you a question. What is more miraculous? God creating the universe out of nothing or God causing you to be a Christian out of your sinful deadness? trick question. Do you think the creation of the universe is miraculous? Is it powerful? Is it mind-boggling? However God did it. Paul tells us that when God made you a believer, it was no less as miraculous. So, what all of us need is the new recreation. The new creation. So listen to these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. In their case, he's talking about unbelievers who are perishing. The God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of God, who is the or Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Listen to this language here. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Where's Paul getting that? 
Just as God said, let there be light in the darkness of the void, created out of nothing, in the same way, God has shown in our hearts to give what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, is that you were spiritually dead. Your heart was dark and void and formless, and you could not cause yourself to have life. And when God called you to himself, it was almost like the day of creation. He said, let there be light in the depth of your hearts. And he recreated you to be a new person. And so as great as the creation of the world is, don't, don't ever think that the creation of you as a Christian is no less miraculous. God took you who were spiritually dead and spoke his word in your heart and gave you light to be able to see the glory of Christ and you believed in Jesus and you were made into a new creation. And what are you in a new creation to do? Live for the glory of God. So, I told you we wouldn't go the full time tonight. We've got a few moments left. What are some questions you guys have? Comments or side remarks? Yes. So, one thing that that I often hear in like arguments when it comes to um, Genesis is always the creation of man. It, it's was was Adam and Eve first? Oh, yeah, first, or were were humanity created and then essentially Adam was created as king? And then we follow his story. Yeah, then, there's there. I don't I don't take that view, but there are some people that believe there was a hominid, like God created like a hominid or a Cro-Magnon or caveman type people that lived on the earth, and then Adam, the the story of Adam was as a special creation of people that already existed that was more of like a humanoid of what a human of what we would call today. Um, is that kind of what you're saying? Or? No, I, I'm more saying like one of the big arguments is always, you know, after um, Adam was kicked out of the, suddenly there's more people out there. Right. And they always ask where they came from. And to me, whenever I, I read Genesis 1, it says that it's it says them. Yeah. So I always assume that well, more people were created than just Adam and Eve. Well, but yeah. I mean, were Adam and Eve the only ones created, and everybody yeah. came from them, or were there more people created alongside of Adam? And Eve? Yeah. Okay. yeah. I believe Adam and Eve were literally created as the first humans, and that you had to have, for lack of a better term, I don't like this term, you had to probably have brothers and sisters having relations at the very beginning to, to propagate the human race just out of necessity. Um, and so, um, it, you know, the Bible doesn't, out of silence, doesn't answer if there were other people created at the same time. But we do know by the time that Cain's like lineage, Lamech, comes, there were cities and there were, you know, wives and things like that. So where those people came from, the Bible doesn't answer. But... Um, it could just be that Adam and Eve had a lot more kids that were mentioned and they were having kids and that there were other things not mentioned. Does that, does that make sense? 
There's some things the Bible, yeah, the Bible is silent on some things, and I think the best thing is where the Bible's silent, and we need to be silent. We can have opinions, but we just have to say, you know, the Bible doesn't really give us that answer. That's the best I got. Anything else? Yes? Uh, there's this, I remember discussing it in class one time, we discussed it a long time, the idea of a canopy yeah. that was created. The firmament. Mm -hmm. Is there, we never discussed what that might have been. Well, I think what it was, it's called the firmament or the canopy um, to separate the waters from the waters. So it was probably at that time, and the reason why people live longer was because it was almost like a greenhouse where it protected the humans and maybe even dinosaurs from the ultraviolet rays that would cause people to live less. Um, but if you notice something with the flood, um, the lifespan was less after the flood. Okay, so what does it say in the flood narrative? Waters burst from the deep and the firmament opened and the waters came in. So I think during the flood, that firmament, God removed that firmament during the flood to bring all that water to deluge the entire earth. And so after it receded, now you no longer have that canopy. You have the ultraviolet rays the way we do. And so the lifespan was not like 900 years. It was more like 150 because of the way that the, the world had changed cataclysmically and the atmosphere had changed because that firmament was no longer protecting human life in like a greenhouse type thing. Does that, does that, that's, yeah. that's kind of my guess. I can never guess, but it's more like real humid or like an ice canopy. Probably more humid, but I, I mean, oh. water, it says it separates the water above from the water below. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Is it like the atmosphere or, or I mean, you know, it could just be like the atmosphere, but one thing we do know is that if we take the Bible literally, people live to be 900 years. And then after the flood, they didn't. So something happened between the flood. Something happened at the flood to change the lifespan. And so we have to assume that whatever that firmament was, firmament or a canopy was, it was some type of way to extend life to live for long periods of time. Sounds good, Rico? Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> Just checking with you. Yeah. Any, anybody else? All right, next week, next week we're going to go into chapter um, 5, which is on God's providence. And let me just kind of explain to you what the difference between... Um, so, providence is how God interacts with his creation in time. So, God's decree, chapter 3, happened before time. What God planned, he predestined us, he had a plan. Chapter 4, God created the world. Providence is how does God act within time and space in the world that he created? How does God govern? How does God interact? How does God move history? How does God sovereignly work in time and space in the creation he created? That's what providence is. Okay? All right, you guys good to go? All right. Let's pray. Looks like your minds are about to explode. I think mine is too. So, um, so Father, thank you for this this time we've had tonight. Lord, there's a lot to think about when it comes to creation, and well, there's so many things we don't know. But one thing we do know is that you're sovereign. You created for your glory. 
We are to live for your glory and that, Lord, um, as great as the creation is, and we, we, we worship you for being our creator, we also worship you for being our new creator and that you, you caused us to be born again and you spoke life into our hearts through the power of the gospel and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you took us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And you said, let there be light, and you made us alive, and for that we are so thankful. So, Lord, help us to live for your glory, put your glory on display to the world around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.